Welcome to Disability Inc. Include NYC's podcast. I'm here today with Karen McCartney, who's the director of curatorial at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum here in New York City, which is really an incredible gem. And we're here to talk about the museum and it's the incredible exhibits that are on display now and the whole history of accessibility at the Smithsonian Design Museum. Hi, Kara. Hi, Ruth. So nice to see you. Absolutely. I'm really pleased to be here. This has turned out to be one of my most favorite venues to visit and it's just a gem, just perfect gem. Um, so I wanted you to introduce yourself a little bit about who you are, your title, and what you do at the Cooper Hewitt. Love to. Uh, my name is Kara McCarty. I'm the director of curatorial at Cooper Hewitt. I've been here for 11 years, and I oversee the curatorial department, which are the curators, conservators, uh, who are sort of the doctors uh, for the collection, and registrar department, who are sort of the librarians uh, for the collection and keeping track of it. And um, I, among the many things I really enjoy doing here, is getting involved in the exhibitions. Clearly, you have put your imprint on these exhibitions now. Um, they are very well thought out. They are so accessible, as is the whole museum. And if you could give us a little background about how the Smithsonian came in New York City came to be, uh, about this wonderful location, and about what you normally present. Yes, so it's a, it was a really uh, wonderful convergence, uh, the way that Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum started. And it's a slightly different title than when we reopened um, as a Cooper Hewitt in 1976. Uh, the collection started as a museum in, in 1897 by Sarah and Eleanor Hewitt, who were granddaughters of the industrialist, innovative, entre innovator, entrepreneur Peter Cooper, who started Cooper Union. And he wanted to have a visual laboratory uh, point of inspiration for the students there, and he was unable to fulfill that dream, but his granddaughters did. So in 1897, the museum opened at Cooper Union. Uh, it was very progressive of them. The, the, I, the philosophy was that the students could touch the works, they could measure them, they could sketch them. And by the way, it was also available to the public as well. Uh, fast forward to uh, the early 1960s, and the, the museum, Cooper Hewitt, continued to build on that collection. Today we have approximately 210,000 objects uh, and we are still acquiring. But in the early 60s, Cooper Union could no longer maintain stewardship of the collection and was looking for a home. And um, in come the Smithsonian. Uh, they were tipped off to it and very keen to acquire it. Uh, the condition being that it remained in New York City. That was one of our the conditions given to with Cooper Hewitt. And uh, the other wonderful thing is that the Carnegie Foundation had this building. 
that they were no longer leasing to the Columbia School of Social Work because they built their own building. And so there was this building ready to receive a collection of museums. So in, eight, in 1976, we opened as Cooper Hewitt here at, on, on the current premises. Wow, that's incredible history. And Cooper Union makes perfect sense. Yes. It's a wonderful partnership. We still do things together. Um, but they're both really two very important, um, I would say, columns of New York legacy. One of the things that you mentioned is that the students were able to touch and feel and measure the objects. Yes. And I can see why this then became such a forerunner of accessibility movement for students, for people to understand the way depth and width of objects to be made accessible. I also know that um, one of your directors was very instrumental in making this an accessible building. Yes, you're referring to Diane Pilgrim, uh, who became a director uh, in the 1980s, and uh, she herself uh, then um, was in a wheelchair, and in the early 90s, after the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, she that coupled with, of course, that was legislation that was requiring buildings to and facilities to be uh, more accessible. And so she really championed some of the, the major changes that happened to the building, Cooper Hewitt at that time during the 90s, making the premises more accessible. And I remember at the time, because it got a lot of publicity, it's, as you know, it's an additional challenge to retrofit an existing building, especially his a landmark, a landmark building. Yes. Uh, so it's, that compounds the complexities. But uh, it really got a lot of kudos, uh, the things that were done with Polshek Partners at that time. And um, I think the solutions were really quite elegant. And then fast forward, uh, to the more recent renovation. We were closed from 2011 through the end of 2014, and during that time, even more um, uh, um, accessibility features were incorporated into the museum. And, um, but we, we didn't stop there. So as part of our real um, priority right now in terms of making the, the building, our content, as accessible as possible, um, we have engaged this last year uh, a company called Institute for Human-Centered Design to do a whole campus-wide audit on our facilities to make it even, to come, to propose ways we could make it more, even more physically accessible and there definitely are some things that we can do. Um, and coupled with that we've been working with some other people to find ways, to identify ways to make our content more accessible. We're going to get back to that in a moment. I just want to go with your, a little of your history as well, because you're uh, the person who kind of oversees what comes into this building. And, yes. But you have a long history of doing this, um, working at other institutions as well. You're right. And so the, the topic of accessibility, which I think you're referring to, yes. is something that has been near and dear to me as a curator since um, I really started my curatorial career. 
And that was in the 1980s when I was working at the Museum of Modern Art. My focus was on contemporary design. So um, as all good curators do, they have our antenna out and um, taking the pulse of what new innovative things are happening. And I had been vacationing in Scandinavia and kept seeing a lot of really beautiful, well-designed, functional products for people with physical disabilities. Uh, enough so that I thought it merited an exhibition. And so in 1988, I organized an exhibition there called Designs for Independent Living. And the title, which I had to fight for <laughs> at the time, was really important because it was got at the underlying philosophy of why the products were being designed. And it was really to help people live more independently. Um, it's very evident in some of the pieces that are here now. One of the most incredible pieces is the chair that is up on the second floor where the front corner is angled so that a child who may have some attention difficulties can move front and back not so much rocking, but they have movement yes. in this very sturdy, simple, yes. colorful yes. chair. Yes. So if they need to be a little stimulated, if they need to move, just by angling the front corner of a chair, and again, simple, clean lines, that just takes this to a whole other accessible level. You know, I love that example, and I, and I, I think that We've got several products on view in the museum right now that, that really underscore that the changes don't always have to be so significant um, in changing the design, the iteration. So if one took, if a designer took a, a step backwards to think of a larger group of users from the get-go, I think many more of our products would be accessible to more people and right. and the word inclusive design term inclusive design is something that we're hearing a lot more of today I don't remember hearing of it in the 1980s but it is definitely sort of the the, the buzzword now and that's really about engaging uh, I like to think of it as designing with the heart because it's thinking about and empathy and thinking about a lot of people to really put yourself in in the shoes of the of the user so for instance in the access plus ability exhibition which is on right now through mm -hmm. September 3rd we have a, a wonderful voting booth that was designed it was a commission by Los Angeles County and the to make their voting booth as accessible to as many people as possible and so it has many adjustments on it, the colors. colors, the ballot is electronic, so that it can, the font size can be enlarged, it can be delivered in different languages. Which is so important now because we want to get as many people out to vote as Definitely. possible. Definitely, it's a very, very, very big topic. Right. Um, and another really good example in the access plusability that gets to your point about not doing a major change is the card game Uno, which I understand is one of the largest selling card games, most popular card games in the world. And just, of course, though, it's dependent upon numbers and colors. 
So if you're colorblind, you know, you're really, it'd be difficult to play. So they worked with a, a company that has come up with an international color coding system. It's a Spanish company. And by including just the code in the upper corner of the card games, suddenly, without doing a major redesign of the game, suddenly it opens up the possibilities of who can play the game. Even the canes that, were, that are displayed downstairs, they're sleek, they're perfect, they look balanced, they just look so usable. And they are, they're so user-friendly, as yes. you're saying, and they're, they're colorful, they are cheerful, they don't look clinical, exactly. they, they give people choices. And that's what really excites me when I think about even during this 30-year period from the first exhibition till now, the, uh, the, the choices that we have, the variety uh, that people have now, the, the fashion, the element of fashion that has been introduced into... The hearing aid that's oh. covered in the, in the sparkly... I, just, I actually took a picture of it and showed it to an older cousin and said to her, would you wear this because it's all fancy? <laughs> she went, what? I said, see? <laughs> I think we're seeing what was interesting, some generational differences in the yes. exhibition responses. But what I really um, get excited about is seeing so many young people who are embracing it. If they have a disability, embracing it, it's part of their disability. And again, they have the choices. And that, that hearing aid you're referencing, um, I the designer, showed me some of the emails she received once the photo went viral and uh, a young woman in Texas uh, saw them and had decided not to go to the prom but when she saw them because she felt very self-conscious about her hearing aid and when she saw it she decided she wanted this one that was just glammed up with rhinestones and she by golly she was going to go to the to her her prom and feel really good about herself it's and absolutely. show it off um karen let's talk a little bit also about programmatically and other art forms because i know that there are other partners that you've worked with um everything everyone from mark morris to other organizations that have come on board with this whole, with these exhibits? Yes, um, it's been a very exciting chapter in Cooper Hewitt's history. We, the exhibition Access Plus Ability and the other show on the third floor right now, The Senses Design Beyond Vision, um, are two, and even our color exhibition called Saturated, are all, we're all um, planned coordinated to be on display at the same time to really help expand the dialogue and the discourse, uh, which has been really very exciting. In addition to that, the museum has really um, made a commitment to being as accessible as possible, both in terms of our physical facilities, our content. But this winter we tried an experiment. We, had, uh, we added two weeks uh, turnaround time uh, to our special exhibitions and had a lab on our third floor, uh, the Access Lab. And we had really rich, uh, robust programming. We had an all-day symposium on the accessible city. We partnered with the Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities in planning that and AARP um, for the programming. We partnered with Mark, Mark, Mark Morris Dance Troupe and had three wonderful dance classes, sessions, classes up there 
uh, for people with Parkinson's. We did a, a national high school design competition about accessibility. And we utilized um, some of the people who are here for the symposium to do the crits, the design crits. And it was some of the most constructive design crits uh, that I have ever heard. And the students really could benefit from, um, from that. We worked with Columbia University Digital Storytelling Lab on, and doing a verbal description salon because that's something that we are all being uh, sensitized to here at the museum. Um, really doing our labels in a much more in a much more accessible way so that people who might be blind or low vision might not be able to see the products or what we're showing but if we can do the verbal descriptions it is really enriching the way that we talk about objects when when we walked through the exhibit we were holding electronic i guess they're scanner wands in a um, that we were able to touch the, um, the actual descriptions and later on download more information about the actual objects. And it just enriched the whole experience at the moment because you were excited to find out what's going to come later. Right. And it carried it through so that you could work with it afterwards and it was a wonderful experience. Well I, I'm so glad to hear you responding that way. We've gotten so much good feedback um, but we are continuing to learn. I mean we are we've really turned the mirror on ourselves right now to, to be a laboratory to uh, work with all types of uh, experts and advisors to really help inform us the best practices and how to push what we are doing on Saturday mornings. Um, one Saturday morning a month, we have we open up an hour early uh, for quiet time at the museum, and we have tours for people with cognitive disabilities, and that has become very popular. That's something that started down at the Smithsonian, um, our mothership, uh, and and we've adopted that, and has really that audience has grown um, considerably. We give the verbal description and sensory tours. They take place the first Friday afternoon of every month in rotating exhibitions for visitors who are blind or low vision. And that's led by Cooper Hewitt educators or curators. Um, and we have also uh, tactile tours for, for visitors to the gallery. So we've really been trying to expand our, our uh, um, offerings here at the museum and it's not going to end when these exhibitions are over. This is something that we are adopting really as our DNA and um, I would love to give a shout out to the larger Smithsonian because they actually opened up their first, they opened up an office, the accessibility office, long before many places mm -hmm. have yes. and it's actually one of the many things I learned about uh, in doing the exhibition, Access Plusability, was that there are a lot of companies in the United States now that have just in the last few years started accessibility, like the chief accessibility officer. And I find that really encouraging that our society as a whole, things are changing. You know, there's a lot more awareness. Some of it is through legislation, but a lot of it is just really being demanded um, by, by people, by the audiences. Uh, what is definitely helping this is some of the technology that's available. I was going to bring that up, that there's um, part
part, some of the objects, some of the ex exhibits showed incredible uses of technology, everything from tracing sound waves and physically seeing them to allowing people to experience um, what someone who is using their eyes to communicate with yes. um, is, is incredible because it makes puts you into a position that you may not understand and it really helps you understand that there are people who can spell, read, write by using their eyes. But this lets you see how it's done and it's really yeah. wonderful. It was um, Google. It was with Google. It's, it's actually it's actually a company called Toby Dynabox, okay. and the the software is by Microsoft, mm -hmm. and it is an eye tracking device yes. that you're referring to, and um, it is it's game changing, no question about it. And I, what's really fascinating, you're absolutely right. It, it gives um, a, other, a total other perspective that makes it seem natural and natural and it's just really again emphasizing what people are able to do and for so long when someone had a disability they've been marginalized often marginalized or people just lump everything together that um, and just you know really emphasize what they cannot do and what we're really trying to do is emphasize what people can do and people just have so many so many abilities and it's just so beautiful and I love the example you gave is a wonderful way of um, enabling people to do hands-free communication but for us to also have access to all the thoughts in their head that that for so long we weren't really they weren't able to share what they were thinking and their thoughts and communicate and we can help reach into them. It really brought it home to think that I can think the same thoughts mm -hmm. and communicate through this device yeah. doesn't you know, belittle the thoughts I'm having. They are the same thoughts, I'm just yeah. communicating through another object. Yeah. And that really made me feel very, very satisfied. Well, I, I, um, I, I was really, that I, I, I felt so optimistic in watching that also. And what I'm interested in is, is this transfer technology? Because we, something like that now, that technology is using by game, is being used by gaming companies. Well, think about how people who haven't been able to do certain types of games or engagement, they're going to have new worlds open up to yes. them. And if you go up to the museum's third floor to the census exhibition, there are a number of other um, experiential um, stations there where people we that really engage our senses beyond vision. The fur wool. Oh, <laughs> the fur oh, wool. We would all love a fur change, yeah. Yes, we could use one. <laughs> you, yeah. you play with the fur, and sounds come out. And the more you do, the different sounds come out, and you walk down the wall. What a wonderful way to go to a meeting. You play with the fur wall. It just kind of yeah. really impressed me. Know it. Yeah, that, that exhibition is just so smart and it's a yes. revealing exhibition to, to, and to the point that you were just making is that you know, we have, our society tends to emphasize the visual, but we are so informed 
by our other senses, and we don't talk about them that much. And certainly in earlier societies, even more, people's survival depended so much on these senses and informing the, each other. The smell, the, 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 the columns, the, the different <laughs> smells, and the names that came up for were just yeah. incredible. Um, the whole exhibit is really, and that's going to be here for quite a while. Yes, that's up through October 28th. So that, um, you know, and that's been a wonderful exhibition also for whole families to come to. And people, what yes. we're finding is that there, it is so much in the exhibition that, that people are coming back several times because they just yes. can't, they get stuck at some of the stations, they get so excited. And, then they, <laughs> uh, and there's so much poetry in that exhibition yes. too. It's fun. It's yeah. really fun. And that's where the chairs are, actually. Yes. And, yes. and um, some simple things. Everything from color of um, the bathroom uh, equipment. And yes. Um, yes. Just to delineate for someone who may have either low vision or specifically for people with Alzheimer's to kind yes. of color code everything that you need to do to so that you can retain your independence there's a hook the colors the sink is, is colored the blocks of color there just so that it can help people follow through and it's just very really important that sense of organization is really 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 critical um, to to all of us but some people even more than others and um, I, I also would love to just you reminded me uh, I would also like to just mention this wonderful collaboration Cooper Hewitt did with Pratt and Caring Kind, uh, which is a nonprofit uh, in New York City for people with Alzheimer's and dementia. And uh, Cooper Hewitt has a long tradition of working with design schools in, in, the, in the region and across the country. But the students at Pratt were looking for a, a project with a social impact project, which I find a lot of students today are keenly interested in. So that's another thing that gives me so much hope for the future, is that genuinely interested in wanting to do something that's good and relevant. And so they um, entered into a dialogue with us, and we suggested that they look, rather than starting from scratch and drumming up something, why not link up with a company, uh, an organization that was already doing good work and had not only the expertise, but a user group. And in this case, it was Caring Kind. And so the students uh, made use of the, the expertise from the people at Caring Kind, and they were really terrific to work with. The, then there were the user group there, the people with Alzheimer's and dementia, who the students were able to observe. And so they were able to spend a semester or two observing and really coming up with what ended up to uh, 25 or 26 concepts that they prototyped. And so the students did a lot of observing, user testing, and we selected six to include uh, with the Access Plus Ability exhibition. And we have a videotape, the students, um, and they came up with wonderful solutions like Velcro wallpapers. That's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, which, you know, we could all use some of that, yeah. and... You can't lose your keys You can't lose way. your keys, you can't <laughs> lose your book, you can't lose your remote. Uh, they have a wonderful... Um, and they're all low-tech solutions, which is something I really appreciate. Uh, a walker, 
We all know the health benefits of having plants, access to plants, being able to smell the plants, touch the plants. Maybe somebody is no longer able to cook or it would not be a good idea if they were cooking. Yet they can still participate by providing the herbs. So they have a walker with an herb garden um, hanging from it and they can put herbs in, in, the, in the food. I love the, the, the shelves on the door. Isn't that a beautiful solution? Yes. It's so gentle. Um, so that was about as that was about somebody distra really distracting somebody who might go out, leave their home, and go off wandering, which can be dangerous. Someone could fall, or they could get lost. And so that was uh, to, to put shelves on the door. So someone approaching a door, they're familiar with their exit route. But suddenly, they come upon this wall that has shelves with photographs of family members, maybe trips, to remind them of, of nice things, memories, things that they've done, and completely distract them from wandering off. I could see that used at many different age stages for young children who tend to try and walk off. Yes. To older adults who forget you know, not to leave. Um, it's it. There's use for that in many different levels. And it's space saving. If you have a yes. small space, yes. uh, you can put shelves on the back of the door. So there are a lot of really smart, um, smart uses. Um, so, tell, talk a little bit about the high school design competition, and maybe next year we can get some people involved. So that was uh, love to, and that's been. Um, we actually had two competitions, which I'd love to talk about. The high school competition was something that we started several years ago with Target. And they have been a terrific partner um, for, with the museum for many, many years. But it started a few years ago. The first um, challenge was to design a chair. And we've got the prototype in our garden here at Cooper Hewitt. And it's been... Um, and the second year was about food, and we had even Alice Waters who came Ooh. and she was one of the jurors. So it's really, you know, it's just a really um, win-win situation for all of us. This year, it was about accessibility to, to really coordinate with its, the museum's focus. And so we had, I think it was around 535 high schools around the country submit um, ideas for this competition mm -hmm. and um, they were just so smart and so the first round of juring was uh, some of the museum staff and we whittled that down to a much smaller group I think it was to 18 finalists and then that was whittled down to a smaller group of three and then uh, we had the jurors come, another group of jurors come and make the final selection which was, it went to two young women at a, a high school in Miami uh, who um, came up with a, a wonderful solution. It's a craft project, mm -hmm. again getting at, at senses, um, and it's mostly for people with low vision. They work with Lighthouse in Miami, again uh, observing a user group, making use of the expertise, but they came up with this beautiful art-making set of supplies for people who are blind. They um, have all different types of wonderful tactile qualities, but to make artwork with. 
And it was just a really, we've got all the boards from those presentations in, in the, on the ground floor at the museum here for the public to see. And what was just so terrific for these students, they went a couple months ago to Austin and they had, they worked with um, designers to, to help improve their prototyping, their models, their presentation skills so that when they came here, they could give a much more robust presentation. It was so professional. It's just, I think it brought tears to every juror's eyes because they're so articulate. They all, all the students got so passionate about their projects. They learned so much. And, you know, I think these are probably game-changing opportunities for them. And this weekend, as we are speaking right now, the two, the two winners are in Minneapolis at Target working with the designers there. Oh, how wonderful. So this is really going to come to fruition for them. So we'd like to hope that we're really, really helping to inspire, encourage young people all across the country to be interested in maybe a career in design. Terrific. I think that's a perfect way to sum up that this is some place that I think every New Yorker, everyone who comes to the city to come visit this museum to see what it's giving back to all of us and how um, accessibility can be so woven into every moment of our lives as a regular part of it, that it should be seamless. Um, using a fun chair to maybe having to use a cane later on in life that is really snappy looking. Um, is something to look forward to <laughs> and in some ways. So I, I really genuinely thank you and thank you for this work. It's so important to us as an organization and to, um, to everyone here in New York. Thank you so much. Well, I thank you for, for featuring uh, everything that Cooper Hewitt is doing and um, for having us on the program and would love to come back at a future date and tell <laughs> you all about um, all the new things that the museum is doing. Thank you so much. Thanks.